0: Good morning everyone I want to start with a story that I heard a fellow pastor tell once he told the story of a man who had two boys and they were twins but they couldn't be more opposite from each other one was an eternal pessimist the other one was an eternal optimist the eternal pessimist Son took everything in a negative way and there was nothing ever positive in his outlook or in the situations that came into his life. On the other hand, the twin boy who was the optimist always saw just everything was roses and candy and cotton candy despite times when he should have been more circumspect or introspective. So the father said, You know, I, I've got to do something here because this isn't good for either one of them. I've got to find a way to bring them back together, to bring them in towards the center. So he thought about it, and it was around Christmas time, and he decided what he was going to do was he was going to take all the toys, uh, all the toys that he was going to give to the twin boy who was the optimist, and give them together with all the toys to the son who was the, po- the pessimist, thinking, well, this ought to cheer him up. This ought to make him happy. And to the son who was the eternal optimist, what he decided he was going to do was he was going to dump a big pile of manure in his bedroom. And so when they woke up on Christmas morning, they would, uh, he would see what their response would be. So he goes to bed Christmas Eve after having done all that. And he wakes up in the morning and says, well, let me see how my experiment worked out. So as he starts walking towards the boy's room who was the pessimist, he could hear sobbing. And so he opened the door and he saw the son sitting in a corner weeping. And he said, said to him, son, I don't, I don't understand what's going on here. You've got all these toys. Look at this pile of toys you got. And the son looked up at him through his sobs and said, you know, all of these toys are going to need batteries. All of them say some assembly required. They're going to break. My friends are going to want to borrow them. They're going to fight. I'm going to have to fix them. This is the worst day of my life. Father says, thinks to himself, I I just don't know what to do with this. So he walks out into the hallway. And as he approaches the son's room, who is the optimist, he hears gleeful shrieking. And so he opens the door, and he finds his son both elbows deep, digging through the pile of manure and just gleefully laughing. Father looks at him and says, I, I don't understand what's going on in here. W- what's going on? The son looks up at him smiling and says, I know there's gonna be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> and so I thought it was appropriate today because it really illustrates what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks and that is perspective. Perspective on how we deal, with not only the good, but the adverse circumstances that come into our lives. And you'll remember last week I began, the title of this series is called The Joseph Question. It was a question that we both defined, that is those times in our lives when things happen, when we're doing our best to try and follow Christ, we're trying to do our best to grow in discipleship and in the service of the Lord. When adverse situations come into our lives, And we just cry out and say, God, why is this happening to me? I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to do the best that I can. And I'm going through this terrible time. And in the midst of it, it seems like you're not there anymore. I'm all alone. And we got to the answer to that last week by looking at key events in the life of Joseph and what he went through. A righteous man who went through many difficult situations, most of us would collapse would give up all hope if we went through the similar situations and the betrayal that Joseph went through during the course of his life. So we we looked at that, we spent a significant amount of time, we spent enough time looking at that, and we came down with these two reasons why God had allowed those circumstances to come into his, his, his particular life and why he allows those circumstances to come into our lives. Number one, to mold him and us into the person that God has destined us to be. Remember last week I used the metaphor of the puzzle. It's like before the foundation of the world and, and the scriptures actually teach this, if you're not familiar with it, I urge you to go search out the scriptures and you'll see that God had an idea of you before the foundation of the world, on who you would be, what, the, what your lifespan would be, what your occupation would be, what your part would be in the church of Jesus Christ. And in time and space, he brings you forth and he will mold you into who he has destined you to become. And it's like fitting pieces of a puzzle into place to get you to where God has destined you to be. And sometimes those pieces, when they're fit into our lives, they have sharp edges and they hurt, and none of us like them. But that's the way God has destined us to be. So God uses the difficult times to shape and mold us into the people that he wants to be. And the second reason is, we don't often consider this sometimes, the adverse and the difficult situations come into our lives, come into our lives not just for us, but for the benefit of those around us as well. And so that's where we kind of ended up last week. And I said in the light of, that, of those answers, what we would be looking at today is basically the issue of perspective what our attitude and response should be in light of the answers that we received last week by studying the scriptures, particularly the life of Joseph. So we're gonna start today with two passages. We're not gonna just dissect each passage. We're just gonna be looking at essentially two words that emerge out of these two passages of scripture. And that's gonna be the basis of our study today. And will give us an answer as to what our response an attitude should be the first one is found in 1st Peter chapter 1 starting at verse 3 we read blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time in this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while if need be you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to praise honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so I just wanna focus there in that passage on that one word, rejoice. It is told to us that in the midst of trials, we are to rejoice. Now that word rejoice comes from a Greek word which essentially means to be glad as to jump for joy. So not only is that unusual, but what's even more unusual is in the voice that is listed in the Greek. It is telling us that when you find yourself in the midst of these times, when we find ourselves here, we are to make ourselves jump for joy. Well... That's difficult. Well, then the second passage is James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The Greek root for that word joy in that passage actually means a calm delight, a calmness. So when you string those two words together, as we'll see in a few moments, what we're actually looking at there is a spectrum, is a a trajectory, a moving from one place to another place in our perspective in the way that we deal with the difficult situations that God providentially brings into our lives. Okay. Some initial thoughts about this. So I thought about this and you know, over the years I've thought about this. I'm you know, not someone who has not gone through their fair share of hardships just like everybody else in the world. But when you take what these two passages are saying at face value, it seems absurd. Who can jump for joy? Who can be calm when they receive a diagnosis of an incurable disease? Or when you lose a loved one, or when you lose your livelihood, or all of the spectrum, the kaleidoscope of the difficult situations that come into our lives. Yippee! You know, in, in October of 2021, I was like, yippee! I had a heart attack. You know, and, and, and in that moment, in that moment is, is where this action takes place, right? So on the surface, It seems an absurdity to think that in the difficult times in life we should not only have a calm delight, but as we come to understand it we should jump for joy that God has brought that into my life. Just a moment of honesty here with you, Pastor Roman can testify to this. Shortly after I had the heart attack two years ago or a year and a half ago, I said to Roman uh, that the next time I preached, I was going to entitle my, ser- uh, my service the message um, the good gift of a heart attack. The good gift of a heart attack. And as I thought about it and as I experienced the aftermath, even though I knew that theologically to be true, I would be disingenuous if I av- actually ever came up here and said that I enjoyed every moment of it or that every moment of it I was dealing with in the right way it wouldn't have been true so I never gave that message I just shut up about it but the idea of joy and rejoicing seem absurd and the second point the ideas of joy and rejoicing are subjective not objective terms subjective means based upon or influenced by a person's feelings taste or opinions Let me give you an example. How many in this room get joy out of watching the TV series Downton Abbey? Raise your hand. Okay, right? So there's a whole bunch of you who don't. How many of you in this room get joy out of owning cats? You see, I get no joy out of cats, being honest with you, right? But I do get joy out of watching Downton Abbey. So you see, it's a subjective term, right? Objective means it's something provable, measurable, it's quantifiable. For example, what does a pound of joy look like? Can anybody tell me what a pound of joy looks like? What does a cup of joy look like? Some of you may see coffee, someone may see wine, or someone may say something else, whatever. The idea being is it's subjective, it's not quantifiable. Now here's the hard part. And to boot, the injunction to be joyful during these times is not a suggestion by God, it's a command in the scripture. We are commanded during difficult times in our lives to bring ourselves to a place of joy. OK, so how do we figure this out? Oh, well, I, I thought about this. It says I, I can sense in my spirit what God's Word is saying here, but how do I communicate this to other people? So I started looking around, and I needed some sort of framework from which to to dive into this topic with you all. So uh, I I was hunting around the Internet, and I came upon this quote, out of all places, the Stanford Dictionary of Philosophy. And uh, bear with me as I read this short quote. Is it up there? Nope. There it is, okay. The New Testament features in varying degrees of prominence a number of attitudinal, that's attitude, phenomena that in modern parlance would be called emotions and practices in which emotions are expressed. Joy and rejoicing, gratitude and thanksgiving, remorse or regret and repentance, compassion, anger, fear, sorrow, envy, pride, shame, content, and others instances of these attitudinal phenomena vary in how theology-laden they are, and in this sense, vary as to whether they count as religious emotions. Perhaps the most prominent of these attitudinal phenomena is joy. It is especially prominent in the writings of the Apostle Paul, who includes joy in his list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and 23. The idea seems to be that when joy is a fruit of the spirit it is about what God has done God's identity or attributes or the believer's relation to God that is the content of the joy is a theological belief and they close this with saying strikingly the object of joy sometimes includes suffering so what are the two takeaways from this from this quote number 1 that a person's response is dependent upon their theological understanding. And number two, this joy, the joy that is talked about here is a specific fruit of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? What are the implications of that? Number one, as I said, joy is subjective. It's based upon a person's influence and experience. The type of joy that is being commanded in the scripture is different from the common conception of joy in these ways. Ready? Number one, it's enabled in the believer by the Holy Spirit's indwelling. The type of joy that is being talked about in the scripture is something that comes as an enablement of the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 5.22 we read, but the fruit of the Spirit Is love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, etc., etc. Number two, because it is a specific gift of the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, it is impossible for anyone who is not in Christ. They can't experience this kind of joy. And number three, it's not static, it moves along a spectrum of trajectory. It moves from point A to point B. It can both expand and contract depending upon your perspective, which will be based upon your understanding of Scripture and the closeness of your walk with Christ. Only the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit can enable the believer along this spectrum, this journey from the face of suffering and being negative and always considering the most pessimistic and the most negative outcomes to being positive and seeing the providence of God and His molding and shaping of you and of those around you in the midst of it. So there it is. I just gave you basically a whole thing on what this joy is. But what does it look like in real life? What does this look like? This movement from being negative, when negative things happen in our lives, to being joyful to the point where we are actually happy because it ends up being proof of sonship and proof that God is intimately involved in our lives. Well, I think I found at least one example. The Book of Psalms is full of them from front to back. But I found one clear example in Psalm 73, which was written by a man named Asaph. Who is Asaph? Well, Asaph was a music leader in the temple worship system. He composed 11 psalms, all of them uh, with a negative tone, by the way. And he's also listed as a prophet in 2 Chronicles 29 and verse 30. So he penned this psalm, And I asked Jacob to put it up in the New Living Translation, because the New Living Translation really captures the essence of what's going on here. And you can clearly see the decided shift at the point in which God intervenes and begins to change his outlook, to change his perspective. So in Psalm 73, I'll read the psalm, and then I'm just going to make a couple of comments on it, and then we'll move on. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those whose arts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping, and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They are not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens and their words strut through the earth so that the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people, enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly, you put them on a slippery path, and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant, they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet, I still belong to you and you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert him will perish, for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good is it to be near God I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. You notice how verses 1 through 16 in that Psalm, his views are decidedly negative. He's saying very clearly, you know, I'm I'm suffering, I'm in trouble, I wake up in the morning, I'm in pain, and you know, even through the night, all trying to figure all this stuff out is troubling me. And he says, Have I have I cleansed my heart in vain? Have I been following you in vain? When I, look at, when I look at those who do not follow you, everything seems to be good, going good for them. But for me, all of these negative things keep happening. So his perspective is decidedly negative. But I let me ask you, at what point did his perspective change from one that was earth-based and time-based and physical-based to one that was heavenly based and eternally based. At which point did his perspective shift? Anyone? Say it loud. When he took it to the Lord, when he took it to the Lord, he was experiencing in that moment, I tried to understand why this was so troublesome for me. And then he takes it to God. It's at that moment, the moment that he took the issue to God, that his perspective changed from an earth-based, time-based perspective to a heavenly-based, eternal-based perspective. We've all been to this place. With some, it manifests as fear. With some, it manifests as anxiety. You know, negative circumstances come, right? Your health is gone. Your job is gone. Maybe you've had a relationship blow up on you that you didn't see was coming. Some sort of catastrophe happens in your life and you react in fear, you react in anxiety, and the more you think about it, the more you obsess on it, it becomes like a a self-fueling inferno, like a tornado that keeps just sweeping and getting bigger and bigger and you start to panic and you really start to experience fear. I don't know about you, but that tends to happen to me in the middle of the night. Anyone experience that? We experience it in the middle of the night and it seems like the world is going to end. And it's at that moment the Holy Spirit intrudes and a spirit of calmness comes over you for a moment. And then you realize it's all going to be okay. Right there, at that moment when that spirit of calmness comes into you and God says, fear not, I am with you. That spirit of calmness, that's the joy that is being talked about in the Bible. That moment right there. Truth be told, were it not for that, were it not for that coming to me in the middle of the night, you know, I am by nature an obsessive individual. I worry about things, you know, and I'm just like Asaph my initial response is always the negative one. That it's going to be the end of the world. Now imagine waking up in the middle of the night and obsessing about all of these things and it's like, what's gonna happen? How am I gonna do this? How am I gonna make this happen? And God's spirit comes in and says, son, I am with you. It will be all right. And a spirit of calmness comes over me. It's at that moment that I have experienced and that you, if you're paying attention, I want you to be intentional and pay attention. That is biblical joy, right there. Right at that moment, right at that intersect point when your, your perspective changes from one to ne- of negativity to one, you know what, God's in control. He's working this out. And just like the Psalmist said, it doesn't matter if my health fails, It doesn't matter if I become a pauper. It doesn't matter if I'm all alone in the world, because I know I'm not all alone. And I know God is preparing me for what comes after. Because what comes after is much better than what we have here. For the believer, this life is as bad as it gets. For the unbeliever, this life is as good as it gets. Think about that. A quiet spirit of calmness settles over you that reassures you and I that we will get through this, that we are not alone. In that moment of calmness, in the midst of that raging storm of emotions, it's that feeling of calmness that's biblical joy. Okay, but remember, It doesn't stop there. In the scriptures, we're told to move ourselves from that point, when in adversity, to the place where we're actually, I'll say it spiritually, jumping for joy. I'm not a person who likes to physically jump much, right? So I'll do spiritual jumping, you know? So how do we get there? Well, this is where it requires a theological understanding And awareness, which means being familiar with the Holy Scriptures. Believer, it won't happen apart from the Holy Scriptures. This is is how the Holy Spirit works in those moments of darkness, is He brings the Holy Scriptures to mind, right? That's why you memorize Scripture. That's why you, you know, uh, I, I think over the last year and a half, I've listened to sermons on Romans 8, 28 to 29, probably 30 times. It seems like almost once a week, you know? It's the scriptures. You know, it's the scriptures that the Holy Spirit uses to induce calmness in my spirit and a remembrance in the midst of the storm that I am not alone, that God is with me. He's leading me through this valley. You know the 23rd Psalm? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why is that psalm always read at funerals? That psalm has nothing to do with death. It has everything to do with this life. Right now, God, the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ, is walking us through this valley of the shadow of death. And in that valley, in this valley of the shadow of death, we need fear, no evil. For you are with me, and your rod and your staff, your rod, which is unpleasant, and your staff, they comfort me." And he's leading us through this valley. So it requires an understanding of scripture. You need to know something about the theological content of pain and suffering in the life of the believer. That's where we come back now to close this out in First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's there. It's waiting for you. Nothing can take that away from you. You will get there. Who are kept by the power of God through faith, It's God who is keeping you in in the faith. You're not keeping yourself in faith. It's God who is keeping you in faith. So that faith can never depart from you. For salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Here is the spiritual jumping for joy part. Though now for a little while, if need be, in other words, it's necessary. The English presents it as a contingency. It's not. It's a necessity. It's necessity. You have been grieved by various trials, right? Grieved by various trials, pressure, affliction, suffering, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. That's how gold and silver and precious metals are refined. They're refined in the fire. You throw a, a slag of, uh, of gold or silver in, into a fire, and the, and the slag, the impurities float to the top and are skimmed off, and what you're left with is purity. That's theologically what difficulty, suffering, and trial means in your life and in my life and in the lives of everyone who is in Christ Jesus. It's God refining us, God purifying us, God readying us for what comes after in eternity. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. They play a necessary part in our lives. God controls them. He limits their extent. He uses them to bring those pieces of the puzzle together so that you will ultimately become, when you cross over into eternity, you will finally become the person who God has destined you to be. That's if you're in Christ Jesus. And then James chapter one, verses two to four, once again. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So the testing of our faith by trials, by tribulation, it produces patience. And so it's part of the process of God maturing his children so that when they cross over into eternity, what's better, then they will be there. So, all right. Now, I don't know about you. So, when I'm going through a difficult time, I mean, I know my theology, right? I've been studying theology intently for better than 30 years now. So I know my theology. I know what the theology of pain and suffering um, is. the actual theological term is theodicy, the problem of pain, suffering and evil in God's creation, right? I know all that stuff. I've teach other people, other young pastors all that stuff, right? But it's something else when it's part of your inner experience. It becomes when the pain and suffering and when the need to understand these things theologically and apply them to my lot, to our lives. When it becomes personal, it becomes something else. So I don't know about you, but I know when I'm going through something, even though theologically I know that God is bringing it to pass for my life and a reason, and for that reason is the good, I'd like to know the specific why. Why is this particular thing? What is it that you want me to learn out of all of this God, right? That's where James chapter 1, verses 5 to 8 give us the answer of how to get there, right? So this is the last Bible text for the day. We read in John chapter 1, verses 5 to 8, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Now this has to be considered within the context of the passage. And so what James says here, when you find yourself in this circumstance, Know, number one, that you will get through it, but also know that God has a lesson for you to learn here. Right? So in that moment, when you do that, when you find yourself there, Lord, okay, I lost my job. I can't seem to find another one. I know you're in charge here. I know this is happening because you have willed it. But what is the lesson? What is the thing that you want me to learn about this? So you ask God, Go to him specifically with the question, and look at what it says here in the text. Let him ask to God who gives all to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For lot, let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his way. So God promises specifically that when you find yourself in the midst of that and you ask God in faith, believing that he will answer you, Lord, what is it that you want me to learn from this? The promise of scripture is that he will answer that prayer 100% of the time, 100%. I don't know about you, but I put this to the test. I have put this to the test. And I have always gotten an answer, and I've always learned, sometimes more than others through the school of hard knocks, but I've always gotten my answer. So to conclude these two weeks, God, why is this happening to me? To mold you and me into the people that he has destined you and me to become, to prepare us for eternity. Guys, we are eternal beings. God has given us eternity. And what comes after this is much better. You know, if you consider the sand on the seashore, that this time span here is just one grain of sand in a, she- in a seashore full of sand. So to mold you and me into the people he has destined you and me to become, and potentially for the benefit of those around you, you know how you deal, moms and dads, with, with uh, you know young children, how you deal with adversity, how you deal with suffering in your lives, your children are watching you. So it impacts them as well. You know, grandparents, whatever your specific stage in life is, maybe your employees, whatever, how you deal with adversity, what your perspective is, as potent- can potentially harm or benefit those around you as well. God is working all this so what should our attitude and response be when our thoughts feelings and emotions start to go awry during times of suffering and hardship go to God with it go to God with it take it to God in prayer read the scriptures watch sermons on on the internet you know I I spend so much time doing that you know and it keeps me centered Some years ago, if you've been here for any length of time, throughout the 21 years, I don't even remember anymore, I think it was 21 years that I was senior pastor here, I said repeatedly that were it not for the comfort of the Holy Scriptures, were it not for God's involvement in my life, that I would be insane. I would be an insane individual right now. I say that without reservation in the presence of you and before the presence of God how true that is in my life. And it still remains true this day, 34 years, I was, I was 30 years old when I was called a saving faith. I've now, I'm now 65, 35 years later, it's as true now as it was back then. God's word is literally the bread of my life. It's what keeps me alive, what keeps me moving forward. So when our thoughts, feelings, and emotions start to go awry during times in suffering, go into a sanctuary, go to God. Look for and observe the feeling of calmness that will come over you as your perspective begins to change when you go to God. It changes from it's the end of the world, I don't know how I will survive this, how I'm gonna get through this, to it's gonna be okay. I don't much like it, but I know it's going to be okay because God is working something out. He is in charge. He is leading me to a higher level of self-understanding and relationship with him. Ask him specifically what does he want you to see in all of this. In his word, he promises that he will answer that prayer 100% of the time. You know, and We don't think of this, but if that isn't true, if his promise that he will answer that prayer 100% of the time isn't true, then there really is no reason to believe anything else that the Scripture says. It injects doubt. It all stands or falls together. So he will answer that prayer 100% of the time, and here it is. When he does, it's in that moment that you will experience rejoicing. Now I know why, God, I'm going through this. And in that moment, that's when the spiritual jumping for joy happens. Why? Because you will know without a doubt that you are not alone, that he is with you, and that you are indeed a child of God. Now, I just wanna close this out by just saying everything that I've talked about here only pertains to those who have a living, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so I don't ultimately, ultimately I only know the state of my own heart here. And as I said to my students in Grace Academy, don't automatically assume because you were raised in a Christian family that you are a Christian. That's not, that's not the entry price. The entry price is you have to turn in faith and repentance, recognizing that without Him, without His saving grace, without His help, without the covering of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, covering your sins, you are outside of the kingdom of God and there is no hope for you. And so I ask all of you, have you made that profession of faith? Have you turned to Christ in faith and repentance, recognizing your sin and recognizing that He is the only one It's only through his shed blood that you can enter into the the heavenly tabernacle, that you will be able to enter into the precincts of God's throne room in heaven. Surprisingly, or not surprisingly, I had students come to me this year and say, I'm not sure that I've ever done that. Thanks be to God that we were able to make that secure right then and there in those instances. So I ask you the same thing. Have you made that profession of faith? Have you turned to Christ in faith and repentance? If you're not sure, if you're not sure, and this is bothering you, don't even wait another hour. Speak to Pastor Roman. Speak to one of the deacons of the church. Speak to a trusted colleague or family member that is a believer, or even come and speak to me, and we'll get it done will approach the throne of God and get it done. So just remember, believer, that God is with you, that you are not alone. Just as he was working things out in the life of Joseph, so too he is in your life.